What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Scott Price, known as SL Price. He was a 26-year journalist at Sports Illustrated, as well as the author of several best-selling books. In this episode, I chat with Scott about his sports media career, his days at Sports Illustrated, his approach to writing features, covering the world's biggest sporting events, as well as his advice for young journalists breaking into the industry. The Wii Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to today's episode with Scott Price on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. Scott, thanks so much for having me on the Wii Sports Quarantine Chronicles. Uh, Lucas, thanks for having me. It's nice to speak to another human being. It must feel a little weird when, you know, these sports are coming back in the, pa- in the backdrop of this pandemic that is still raging across North America. I mean, the whole thing is, is you know, without precedent and feels strange in ways that are, that are almost impossible to process because we almost don't have the tools for understanding it and, and dealing with it. I mean, essentially, you're talking about an entire industry. And, I, and obviously, I'm not just speaking about the athletes here, but, but about the sports journalists. Um, you know, everybody who covers sports is so dependent on live events. Mm-hmm. And, and essentially, there's an entire sports industrial complex that has been built around talking about live events and the new daily, hourly, by second drama that is created by those events and, and the, you know, essential conflicts that that rise up from them all of a sudden we literally are dealing in a world without content now you know there's no question that there's pretty quickly you know the plans for reopening created their own conflict again what i'm saying is is that the essence of any story usually is some kind of conflict or journey the fact is both the conflicts and the journeys were 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 halted dead in their tracks for the first time really in sports history or at least for in a hundred years so so now you know with the reopening and the various plans and the various trepidations on people's parts the the stop and start na- nature of somebody like Djokovic having a you know his own tournament and and uh, you know nightclub dance parties and and then you know the op- every gradation from that to you know nothing getting started at all you have all kinds of things to talk about but the fact is is that it is a bit of a shadow play and and it does really leave everybody sort of holding on to their hat waiting for this thing to get started again and look I, in 1995 i wrote a story about cuba i went down and did a story on the on the um, cuban sports machine i ended up writing a book about it but i was down there seven different times and my kicker was everybody waits and it was just about how the state of mind of the of the cuban people and the Cuban athletes waiting for some kind of change with the death of Fidel Castro or the change in the regime. But in, in essence, everybody was just sort of waiting. And, and it really, I, I sort of felt that eerie resonance from that line over and over the last through, you know, four or five months, because everybody's just sort of waiting for, for it to happen again, for life to happen again. And it's, and it's a weird thing, because we're almost not trained as journalists to, to really process 
and express that. We, we're always writing about what's happening and what's new. And there's not a lot that's been happening. And the newness is incredibly repetitive. Yeah. I mean, certainly a challenge for a lot of journalists. And, and you certainly painted that in your answer. But, you know, you, you, you mentioned journey. And, and the reason why I want to have you on today is to talk about your journalism journey and and you know so so accomplished for so many years you were a graduate of the university of north carolina covered michael jordan's sophomore year and i know that we're all uh, crazed with michael jordan after watching the last dance scott was journalism always your path that that, that you wanted to pursue as a career well yet yeah, um <laughs> no I, I i mean i sort of fell into it. What I mean is I went to college thinking I, I, I was a, a history major to begin with um, and probably was thinking about being a history teacher. Um, and um, pretty quickly, I sort of got um, my path sort of turned toward English and literature. And I was, I was you know, English major at school and, um, and I was a horrendous writer. And so I knew that I needed to get better as a writer to be any good and that a news working for a newspaper would force me to to write and and you know get better and especially at a place like North Carolina I, I transferred there after my junior year uh, after my sophomore year at the University of Connecticut um, you, you know uh, the sports the sports department of the campus newspaper I knew instead of writing features or news which are sort of occasional pieces uh, dictated often by you know not not sort of a daily deadline daily drumbeat daily deadline sports demanded that you were going to have to write a lot and the one thing I did know is that I knew my weakness and I knew I needed to fix it and so I love sports but I, I, I my biggest impulse was well, this will be fun and interesting, but more importantly, I'm gonna, I'm, it'll force me to write a lot. And it just so happened that I, was at, I, I, I dropped into North Carolina at a time when not only was Michael Jordan and, and Sam Perkins and, and James Worthy was there at the time, but North Carolina had a top five football program for one of the first few times in its history. And um, their baseball team had four future major leaguers on it. And, and really nobody was really paying attention to the baseball team. It was, it was pretty much baseball games were a place where, you know, uh, fraternity guys would go with a keg of beer and sit in the stands and, 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 and get suntans. And so it was just this cornucopia of incredible athletes and an opportunity to write about them. And I happened to benefit in a way that nobody coming out of school now uh, is benefiting, which was that, I came out in the mid 80s at a time when newspapers were incredibly flush. They had 20% profit margins. They had a monopoly on classified ads. They literally had more money than they knew what to do with. And so they could take a chance on somebody who, who really wasn't a very good writer. But I had these clips from North Carolina that happened to be not just, you know, the local high school team, but, you know, national championship caliber athletes. And of course, Michael Jordan was well known. Um, after his after his freshman year for hitting the shot that won Dean Smith his first uh, national championship, so I got that advantage and I got a job at the Sacramento Bee, um, and essentially was hired to 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 sort of be the the Sacramento Kings first beat writer after they moved from Kansas City to Sacramento and and I mean that was I, I mean an astonishing amount of luck uh, was involved and not only that with people who 
saw something in me that I certainly didn't see um, and, um, and really went out of their way to help me. And, and uh, like I said, uh, I mean, for an extremely long period of time, uh, I really struggled as a writer. Um, and, and not to say that I don't now, everybody struggles as a writer. You, if, you stop, if you're not struggling, you're not, you're not really trying. Um, but, um, but people were incredibly patient with me and I, I happened to be uh, the King's first beat writer. And I was like 22, 23 years old and scared to death. And, <laughs> and, but that, what, but I was, I mean, the thing that's most important, I mean, I've, I've, I've written a lot of features in my uh, time at Sports Illustrated, but what was most important was, um, being a beat writer, and I, uh, I was in a very competitive situation, which is also rare in newspapers. Even then it was. There, there, the, there were two morning papers going up against each other, and actually that had already begun to, to, to dry up in the United States. Um, so I realized the value of news. I had to break news, and I had to um, make even my feature stories. Um, you had to find something, at least move the story forward somehow. You couldn't just tell the same story in your own voice. You're always looking for new information. And that, that really was the most valuable thing I've ever understood. And only being a beat writer could teach me that, um, which is that, you know, really, we all want something new. You know, we don't want to read the same thing over and over again and or, or see the same thing over and again. You got to tell me something new about the subject in hand, whether it's um not just journalism, but whether it's a novel or poetry or nonfiction or a movie, it's, it's showing you the world or the, or the subject in a way you hadn't seen it before. And so being a sports beat writer really, really taught me that. And I, I you know, also was just after being on the Kings, I was also a beat writer on the Giants, San Francisco Giants for a year and the 49ers. I was a backup beat writer for, for a season as well. And I was really lucky there too, because I happened to be in San Francisco in the Bay Area from 87 to 90, which was really the first golden age of San Francisco sports. I mean, you had um, the Giants and the A's in the World Series. I was in the earthquake game on the upper deck of Candlestick Park when the, when the stadium jumped. I covered, you know, Joe Montana's 49ers. And, um, you know, so, so I, I, was, I was extraordinarily um, lucky. I was the, the beneficiary of some incredible timing. Um, in my career, and and I wish that I could take credit for it. I'm a guy who grew up with, grew up with no money, so like you know, I, I could easily sort of fool myself to thinking, oh, I pulled myself up on my bootstraps. But but really, I, I happened to come into the industry at a time when the industry was flush, and and there were people who saw something in me who really went out of their way to help me, and I I, I was extraordinarily fortunate in that. A lot to unpack there, and you know, I but I'll. Talk about and focus on something that you said about not being a good writer, because I think sure. you're right. Like, I think a lot of young journalists and even experienced journalists, like, you know, you need to still have that, you know, struggle to order, you know, figure out new ways to say and, and capture different moments. But for you, what does, you know, struggling as a writer mean? Because anyone can go back to your old clips and see, okay, I've obviously improved as a writer, but was it more finding the right words to explain a certain situation? Was it structuring your stories? What was it? And when did you start to feel like, okay, you were starting to improve as a writer? You know, that's an incredibly great question. Um, and, and let, let me put it this way. A few years ago during the scandal at North Carolina, the academic scandal, I went back to North Carolina to do a piece on, um, 
on just sort of being a graduate who had written, I'd written a column sort of slamming the building of the Dean Dome on campus when I was a student. And it was your classic sort of undergraduate, you know, screed and bomb throw. I meant it, but you know, it's, it, it was like, you know, stamping your feet and everything else. And, and I, I liked it. I, and, but, and I think I was right even now. So I wanted to go back and see uh, essentially as an alumni, but somebody who, who, who had a cool eye on, on the academics, uh, I'm sorry, on the athletic structure there, um, just, to, just to take it the temperature of that scandal. And when I did, I went back to, to the uh, Daily Tar Heel clips, which is the campus newspaper. And uh, I, I, I can't tell you how appalling it was to go through my stories of that year. Um, I was such an annoy, not only was I bad, but I was annoyingly aggressively bad. I was in your face bad. Um, and so it wasn't like I was just boring. I was sort of like setting off bombs badly. And um, it was really a, a, a uh, I knew it intellectually, but to read it again, I mean, in the end, I even I wanted to punch that writer in the face, you know. So it was it was really uh, terrible. I I I did, you know, but but there was voice, like like I did. The one thing I did have was a voice. It was probably it was way too much voice and not enough knowledge or skill, but I had voice, and but it was completely undisciplined and all over the map and ridiculous. And then, um, and then I went to to the Sacramento Bee, and like I said. Being thrown into a competitive situation gave me a certain discipline. I, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners will know who Gary Smith is, but Gary Smith is a legendary Sports Illustrated writer, you know, the greatest feature writer, not only in Sports Illustrated history, but, but really one of the great magazine writers of, of all time. And everybody coming out of school my age, you know, who was into writing, and believe me, sports writing was a real sort of cult. You, you, you sort of fell into it, and everybody was insanely devoted to it. Uh, and read everything and, and, and compared notes on it, who was good and who sucked and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I came out of school thinking I wanted to write like Gary Smith, like everybody else. I was sort of a journalistic cliche. But what I, what I didn't understand and what I did begin to understand once I started covering a beat was that Gary um, found out stuff about his subjects that you'd never heard before. Like, like at his best, he, was, he wasn't just a beautiful writer. He was an incredible reporter. And so I learned it the opposite end, being a beat writer, and came through it that way, and and came to understand that. And that understanding certainly informed me. Because, but but for six years, six seven years, I really struggled to figure out what I was doing. And um, you know, I tried terrible leads and put song lyrics at the top and you know maybe sounded like david letterman one day and you know the, the voice of god the next it was just it was just it was just a, I, I i felt really i feel really bad for my editors then you know they were incredibly patient i was breaking deadlines all the time it was just it was it was, it was an appalling show all in all but i um eventually i went to see a mike tyson fight uh and i read a column by pete hamill a legendary columnist for the New York Post, I think at the time. And it was an astonishing uh, uh, column that I'm sure Pete Hamill probably doesn't even remember. It was like one of those pre-fight columns leading up to it. And he, and he didn't, he wasn't dealing with Mike Tyson. He was dealing with Carl the Truth Williams, the, the, uh, the opponent then. And I, it was just astonishing to watch Pete Hamill be in charge of his column. And there was a confidence there and an understanding that that even though he was there to be fair and to report what he saw, um, 
the column and, and the writing was his to what he made, his, his to make, his to create. And um, there was something of the audacity of that and, and the knowledge that that really was what, that I remembered that every single piece that I've ever read, uh, you know, that I admired the, the author, the writer, the reporter was fully in command of his material and knew what he wanted to say. And there was something about that that settled me. Um, I still made some incredibly egregiously bad paragraphs in my life, but, but it was always animated by the reporting. And so as long as I sort of kept that as my, my guiding light, which is just, you've got to make it new. You've got to find out something new, push the story forward. Sometimes you push the story forward only an inch and that's okay. And in the case of Michael Jordan, um, that's all you're going to do or LeBron James. And then every once in a while, you'll, you'll do a piece on somebody and you'll get the mother load and you'll, you'll, you'll advance the story a mile. But as long as you do it in some, some respect, you're doing your job. And there was something about that that settled me and calmed me down. And, and, and you know, I, I, I was an over-the-top writer in many ways. But I remember a professor once said to me, you know, it's, you know that's okay. It's easier to, to bring you back. It's easier, it's easier to tone that down than to gin up a writer who's underwhelming. And so um, I lucked out because I, I've always, I came from a very bombastic family. And so, uh, you know, we were, we were all a little bit loud and over the top to begin with. And, and lucky enough, I had an, enough good editors who, who sort of drew me back and, and calmed me down. Well, a really great answer. And I think your point about being an excellent reporter really shines. And I think that's, to me, what stands out with a lot of Sports Illustrated writers that I've read over the years, you know, Gary Smith and Rick Riley and so many others where, you know, like there may be better writers than, than they are out there, but their reporting shines above everyone else. Because I think the, the best stories are the ones that, you know, find the unique angle and really find the unique tidbits and nuggets about a person or a situation that allow the story to really advance because in the era of social media, like we're all obsessed with, you know, getting a transactional bit of news out first. And, you know, those pieces of news, while they're important, it's over and old in five minutes, but a story where you well, Lucas, look, look, yeah. Yeah. And Lucas, let me, let me just say something. Look, you're, we are in danger. We're at a very dangerous point in journalism. And the reason is money. I mean, let's, let's be frank here. Mm. Re reporting costs money. Like, I, you know, I would go and, and, and sit on a story for months making calls. I did John Calipari before he ever talked to me, and I talked to 70 people before he ever talked to me. Um, and then you go and, and you're 10 days in a hotel, and you're, you know, driving around all over, you know, a few states and, you know, racking up mileage in a rent-a-car. That costs money and time, and time costs money. And the problem now in the business, of course, is that, is that the industry is cratering. And not only does it cost money, but it often, I mean, I would argue, of course, that the best stories when you break news certainly will get a response on social media and get, and get clicks and so on and so forth. But the fact is, is that overall, you're going to have, um, uh, uh, you know, there are times when you'll report a story and you'll, it's a dry hole, but you got to report that story. So, so, the point is, is that sometimes it doesn't pay off. 
So that used to be okay when papers and magazines were making great amounts of money. But now editors and, and publishers are like, well, we can't afford to send you there. Try and get this person by phone. Or, you know, we, or better yet, just give us your hot take. <laughs> and, you know, the problem now, and I think, you know, what, what, what hasn't been noticed a lot is the sort of the death of the general sports columnist in, in newspaper and in general, people who are just, you know, I've, I've been in a place for a long time and I went to the Super Bowl and this is what I saw there. And then I went to the World Series, what I saw there, you know, takes are like belly buttons or whatever other kind of <laughs> button you want to talk about. Everybody's got one. And the fact is reporting is, is, is only more valuable, you know, in terms of understanding the issues in the world. It's very easy for someone to just type up in their basement or let's say their kitchen table, some sort of hot take and they'll get a tons of clicks and especially if they're extreme. But the fact is somebody, the, the, there's less and less reporting because it costs money than there's ever been. And it's, I would argue it's never been more necessary because what we don't need right now is yet another person spouting off telling us what he thinks. Because guess what? We aren't that interesting. That's why I became a reporter. That's why I like talking to people because I myself am bored with myself. I'm, I'm inside my head 25 hours a day. I don't want to hear what I have to say. I want to hear what other people have to say. I don't know as much as other people about the issue at hand. I need to talk to them about it. And so, you know, there, there are like maybe three journalists, you know, writers in the history of the world who actually their every thought was interesting. And, and Norman Mailer, by the way, thought he was one of them. And he's a god to a lot of people. He, too, was boring 60% of the time. So we are not that interesting. Our job is to get, and, the, and that's why we go out and talk to other people, because their stories are better than ours. Their stories are more interesting than ours. Their lives, in some way, are more interesting. We are observers. We are question askers. And so that costs money. And so we're at this weird inflection point in journalism right now where, where takes and hot opinions get a lot of clicks and get a lot of sort of response in the ec journalism echo chamber of Twitter, but don't necessarily create anything of value and don't really move ahead our understanding of anything except for the person who wants to advertise their brand. And so until a new business model comes along that, that is, is created that can really essentially reward reporting um, or at least support it we're in a we're in a foggy place right now in terms of journalism because and 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 frankly I, I you know we we can always argue that our time in history is a, is a time of crisis you know every every bit of human history is a time of crisis in one way or another but you know with the explosion of social media I would argue that that hard fact and understanding of, 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 of the story at hand from as many angles as possible so that we get to some semblance of truth is more important than ever. And, and that's in, we're in danger of being lost right now because at the same time that's happening, journalism as an industry is losing, is, is, is losing jobs like at, at an insane rate. No, for sure. And, and, you know, you mentioned how, you know, traveling for, for different assignments and, you know, you were someone that, you know, traveled not just in North America, but, but all over the world. And I think, you know, journalism to have that perspective, that global perspective, just makes you more knowledgeable and intelligent as a journalist, particularly when you're reporting on 
different subjects. Did you did you find that when you were sent around the world, whether it's you know writing you know a book or covering a different event, that just being around the world and developing understandings of different people and different cultures just made you more well-rounded as a journalist? Oh, I mean, there's no question. I mean, I mean, you know, I had to constantly, you know, reassess my thoughts on everything. And, and, and let, let me just say one other thing. And this is, this is sort of the heart of, of at least what, what would, you know, animate me, you know, when you, when you report, you're scared. You're, you're reporting out of fear. Especially me. I was a, what's known as a parachute guy. I drop into like places where I wasn't a beat writer. I'd have to gather information quickly and an understanding of the situation to the point where at some point I had to fool myself into believing that I had become the expert and could write with confidence. And so uh, about the subject at hand and the only way to even get there was knowing I'm going to make a fool of myself if I don't if I don't hustle and and do my best to understand this as well as I possibly can, which means read everything and talk to everybody. And and literally that was my driving principle every time I do a story: read everything, talk to everybody. Then you sit down and you write, and you have to fool yourself that you've you've gotten there, that you understand it. And so then you have to write with this incredible assurance right? Like a God almost. Like I'm in charge of this story. I understand all these people. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous leap of faith. And then you wake up the next morning and you have to turn that off and say, ah, I don't know anything. I got to make 20 phone calls today to figure out more because I, I clearly have no idea what I'm talking about. So you, you were constantly flipping back and forth between being abject fear and abject confidence. And, and, uh, and, <laughs> and, and that's why writers right there are so neurotic. Like what a crazy sort of mental piece of gymnastics you have to do to, to even put something on paper, whether it's any good or not, just to get there. And then, then there's that insecurity of whether it's any good, but it's, it's, a, um, it's, an, insane, it's an insane sort of walk. And, and, being, and, and going around the world, I mean, it was an incredible reward. Like I said, I, I, I grew up with no money. So the idea that, I mean, and, and you have to love it. And that's the other thing which is never talked about. I mean, I would have, if someone had said to me, you can go, like, if someone said to me, I would be a person, I, my kids go nuts all the time because their friends come over and I, they're like, oh God, dad's going to ask them all these questions. Like I, I, I ask people questions all the time and I, just because I'm interested. And so the idea that I could travel around and ask questions of people, like that's me. And, and it just so happened that I had a job that, al that allowed me to do that so that when I would go up to people, instead of like edging away from me, because I was the weird guy at the train station asking them questions, I was the guy from Sports Illustrated or the Miami Herald or, or the Sacramento Bee. And they're like, well, of course I'll talk to this guy. And so I, I just happened to be in that situation where, where who I was lined up with, with what I was doing. And like I said, I loved it. And I was really, truly interested. So people would tell me things. And for the longest time when I was a really bad writer, that's what sustained me as a, as a reporter, as a, it kept, my, kept me in my job because I would, and I, the only reason I knew this is because I'd go back to the office and, 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 and I had her say, well, God, that guy never said anything like that before. I was like, well, here it is on tape. Like, I, I don't know. And, 
And, and, so, and that happened so many times that clearly people were, I, I, I understood that the, if nothing else, if I couldn't write and, and I was banging my head against the wall reporting wise, for some reason, people would tell me things. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I really loved what I was doing and I truly was interested in talking about, I wasn't there to, like once the conversation started, the interview started, uh, I would have been interested in that person either way and I just became interested in their story. And if they, no matter how smart or dumb a person is, they have a, human beings have an incredible BS detector. They understand when someone's interested and they understand when someone's not. And maybe they'll be there and they'll give you your quotes or give you the information, but they're not going to maybe be as comfortable if they believe you're just there for the quote or the story. Now, again, this is this weird false construct of an interview and an interviewee. It's not, a, it's not an organic relationship, but it is a relationship. And because I just happen to be really interested <laughs> genuinely and i would have had that conversation with that person even if there wasn't a story and i think they picked up on that um people would tell me things and and it's it's pretty simple i mean if people think you're just there to get the quote or just there even though that's the reason you're there they think well this guy's really not interested in me or my story or my family they're not going to tell you about them their story or their family i mean i say this a lot you know when when we're young, we date other people, right? But we don't tell everybody our story. Our stories are incredibly important to us. And I'm, when I mean our stories, I mean, you know, my dad wasn't working. We had no money growing up. My parents split. This was my dream. I, I, I secretly wanted to be, you know, an archaeologist. You're not going to tell that to everybody. You'll, you'll hook up or date with pe people and You'll have, but sooner or later, you're going to get together with somebody and, and the breakthrough moment is when you tell each other your stories because those things are the most valuable possessions we have. So people don't like giving that up to just anyone. But if they think that you're sincerely interested in them, the odds are they're going to, they're going to give, tell you the, their story far more than if they're not. And if they trust that you're interested in them, that trust is very important. So I just happen to have that and that, and both and that happened to me internationally as well. I mean, I, you know, I, I I'm not the greatest linguist. There are times where I, my my Spanish is uh, it, it would go back and forth, <laughs> up and down, uh, good and bad. And there were you know times I needed translators, times I didn't. But I can't tell you that that happened across language barriers as well. People would tell me things, and and I don't really know what it is, but but it happened over and over again. And and I learned far more as you pointed out in your question, I mean, me, it, it made me not only a better journalist, it made me a better person. It made me less provincial. It made me understand the world. It made me understand the United States and my home in a way I never would have been able to understand it if I was only speaking or viewing it, you know, from a guy who had only lived in North Carolina or Connecticut or wherever the number of places I've lived. So again, I've been extraordinarily fortunate. Do you live, Scott, I mean, you know, in your career, you know, you've covered a lot of events, but, you know, do you live as a reporter for the big events like the Super Bowl, the World Series, a Grand Slam tennis tournament, or, or are you more in your comfort zone as a writer when, you know, you're sent to a different country to, you know, to do a feature on someone or writing a book, let's say, on a particular topic? Well, that too is a great question. 
I mean, Grand Slam tennis tournaments and, and going to a tournament and, and, and covering events, I did love doing it because, first of all, I'm competitive and it was and it's fun. It's also fun to watch events. I mean, I'm just on a very basic human level. The other thing is you get into this amazing rhythm. Like Grand Slams especially are, are the ones I've done, you know, on a regular basis more than anything else. I mean, I covered a lot of NBA finals and, and, and World Series, but Grand Slams were something. And you get into this incredible rhythm and you're exhausted and, you know, you're pounding out stuff every day. You're working sources. You're running up and down hallways. It's, it's incredibly energizing and, and great. And also, of course, you gain a ton of energy from the event itself. Because, it, as I said, about this quarantine and the lack of sports, well, you have, like, at a Grand Slam, you have, like, dozens of matches every day, especially in the first week. And, and you're, you're, your head's on a swivel, and it's incredible. And the other part about it is you're in a room full of other journalists, full of ideas who care about the same event you do, and you're talking all the time about writing and journalism to a certain extent, especially with those you're not competing against. You know, obviously, you're, you sort of keep your, your secrets from the ones you're competing against. And the other thing is, is, I can't tell you how many times I was at a Grand Slam writing about tennis, where not only would I learn stuff that would lead to me writing a long feature later, not just, but not just about tennis. Like, there are plenty of, like, I certainly, I wrote a gigantic story on Pancho Gonzalez that was, you know, because I was at a Grand Slam event talking to other tennis writers and, you know, just, just chopping it up, as my son likes to say. <laughs> but, but, but. I mean, that John Calipari story that I wrote uh, uh, about the Kentucky coach came out of, I remember I was at the U.S. Open and, and we were talking and there were some other Sports Illustrated writers there. And it suddenly struck me that SI had never done a major story on John Calipari, who was arguably the most important coach at that moment in, in, in college basketball. And, and not only that, but the most controversial. And I was, I was just like, this is, this is insane. And, and so, you know, that's where that idea came from. And then, you know, I, story that I wrote uh, reported 20 years ago that's that's still on my docket as a as a podcast I learned about it at the World Series but it was a college football story mm. and so so there's something about the ferment and the and the friction and the energy created at events that lead to those other stories and it, and it sort of sends you it, it's a new propellant it's gasoline it sends you into those long-form stories and other places other other worlds that that uh, you might not have done I mean I I I did a piece on the Roll family, R-O-L-L-E. Um, that name at a certain point in time was, was very prominent in sports in America, football players, uh, you, you know, uh, other athletes. Um, uh, and, and I found it through a tennis player. Um, uh, and, and that's when it struck me that that name had this weird resonance in American life. And I went back to the Bahamas and tunneled into the, the the sort of origins of the name and the family and the and the slave trade and uh, it, it was an incredibly invigorating story that you know was I was all over college football with it but but it, it started at a tennis tournament so those events you know and you don't know until you go what's going to come out of it and that's that's the great thing about it I mean it's it's uncontrolled and you have to um, you have to ride that wave but but it's almost incredible it's it's so rewarding to do so those events are you, to cover them is, 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 a, is a great privilege. You, you started Sports Illustrated in 1994. And I'm just curious because, look, it was at a time when, again, you know, sports magazines and, and publications were, were doing very well, m making a profit. 
and you're surrounded by so many talented sports writers at SI. Did that push you and motivate you to just, you know, be a better writer and a better journalist, just given the quality of the people and the journalists surrounding you? Yeah, I mean, you got to understand from the moment I was hired by the Sacramento Bee, I thought I was going to be fired. <laughs> so I, I just, what I mean is I was constantly, don't ever say that negative motivation uh, isn't helpful. I mean, mm. I, I simply thought, well, someone's going to figure out that I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm going to get beat on a story and I'm going to lose my job. Like that, that's it. Or, you know, and so being at Sports Illustrated, um, I mean, you have to know that um, in one sense, in one sense, I wasn't intimidated. I'd spent 10 years in newspapers and I was writing for the Miami Herald. And by then I felt like I sort of knew what I was doing a little bit. Um, and I was unlike most American journalists in that I did not grow up wanting to write for Sports Illustrated. Um, this, there was a magazine called Inside Sports that um, uh, was owned by Newsweek, I believe. And um, Gary Smith was writing there and, and, and just, Pat Jordan and these other incredible writers who were writing in a way that really spoke to me in a way that Sports Illustrated in some ways didn't. Not that I didn't recognize how great the people were there, just I just felt I would have fit better at Inside Sports. I, did, I, never, I never really dreamed of working at Sports Illustrated because I, I just didn't think it was my, my it wasn't a place for me. Um, uh, I would fit in better at Inside Sports. And so, um, then Inside Sports went out of business, and that was that. And actually, Sports Illustrated hired Gary. So, um, so but when I got to Sports Illustrated, um, I was incredible. It was incredibly intimidating. Oh, and and there's no question you felt well. I I just I just want to be able to be in the same room. You know, I just want to be able to be on the same masthead and not embarrass myself uh, because, you know, everybody Richard Hoffer, Gary Smith. Uh, Franz Lids uh, and and the great Bill Knack, um, you know, Riley when he was writing features, uh, you know, this was an incredible lineup of talent, and um, I just wanted to to have the opportunity to to be on the same in in the same masthead. And when you were on a contents page with names like that, it really was an incredible sense of pride that you that you were even even there in the same, literally mentioned in the same breath, if not the same, <laughs> same league. Um, but it was, um, so yeah, it absolutely pushed me. And, um, but I was doing, I was doing a lot of weird things and, and it was very, um, like I said, reporting based. I came onto Sports Illustrated along with Tim Layden and Michael Farber, um, Tom Verducci, Peter King, it was at a time when the magazine felt that they were too featurey and needed more reporting. And, and um, so, you know what I mean? We, even though there was that old guard, um, they, they clearly made it clear that, that they wanted what I and others could bring to the, could bring to the magazine. So as long as you sort of weren't trying to write like somebody else and were trying to stay in your lane, and I don't mean, you couldn't experiment or try things, but you know, as long as I kept that animating principle of reporting and pushing the story forward, I felt like, well, I was doing my job. Like, and so 
I was justifying my presence there. Um, but it was, um, you know, I was really lucky because Sally Jenkins is the great columnist for the Washington Post now. But when I got to uh, Sports Illustrated at the time, she was covering college tennis, uh, college football and tennis. And that was what I was brought on to do also. Mm-hmm. And, and Sally's a, a tough cookie. You know, she, you, you, could, you could mistakenly believe she'd, she'd have very sharp elbows. But in, instead, she's one of the great colleagues in our business. And she was incredibly welcoming to me. Um, we're not close. We're not close friends. But I, I, I always admired and, and appreciated the, just how, how generous she was as a colleague. And, and frankly, that, 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 that rings across the business. The better people are, the more generous they are. You, you know, it's like, weirdly enough, the great ones uh, were often the nicest, the most generous, and uh, the, the most welcoming. Uh, you know, Bud Collins comes to mind at, at the Boston Globe, uh, the great tennis figure. Um, and that's, that's something you don't really expect. You know, you expect only great egos and that kind of thing. But, but it was quite the opposite. It was a, uh, Sports Illustrated was an incredibly welcoming place. And the editing at the time was outstanding. Uh, sometimes could be heavy handed, but overall, it was like seven levels of editing and great fact checking. And so they worked really hard to make sure you didn't embarrass yourself and they saved you from yourself as a writer, which if you're any, if you're smart at all as a writer, you understand, uh, you should appreciate. And speaking of, you know, some of the stories, you know, that you wrote, you obviously, you know, wrote a lot of features and did a lot of, you know, reporting at SI. And, and one piece that, you know, that I read, you know, in preparing for this interview that really stands to my, stands out is about Nick Bonaconti and uh, the complicated decline of, of Nick Bonaconti. And, you know, reading it and reading the lead and just, you know, the construction of it, you know, your, your language is very, you know, punchy and to the point. And, and I think for a lot of young journalists, the economy of words is so, so important. And especially sometimes, you know, overwriting something, but less is more. And I think in this piece, it certainly shines through. Can you maybe just describe what it was like writing this piece and just your process to capture the decline of someone that, you know, as you say in the lead, you know, heads always turned for, for this individual. Yeah, I mean, Nick, you, you have to know that Nick was, in, in, Nick Fonacani was a massive name in my youth. You know, the, the perfect season Dolphins were, were uh, you know, obviously epic uh, figures uh, in the NFL. It, it, at the height of the NFL sort of epic figure <laughs> um, uh, factory, you know, in terms, of, in terms of producing those kind of epic figures uh, where the reporting was maybe not so uh, rigorous um, and, uh, you know, the the you had a lot of larger than life figures in that in that sport and and um and nick and the and the of the perfect season dolphins for me nick bonacani was always the the supreme sort of figure um as a player and very proud and i and i actually had i had spent time with nick because i can't remember how it might have been a decade previous i had done a a massive story on his son, Mark Bonacani, who's, who's um, while at the Citadel's college football player was paralyzed uh, after a hard hit. Mm-hmm. And I had spent time with Nick then um, when I was living in Miami. Um, uh, my wife uh, knew one of Nick's daughters. Um, and, and so I, 
I knew of Nick and and I knew of Mark and I and and Mark ended up being a cover story for SI and um I mean the the families <laughs> I I mean it, it, it's weird because as the game sort of hit these these shoals of of the damage that that the game can do on a mind and a body um I realized that there's no family. The first family of, 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 of the ravages of football was the Bonacani family, uh, mm-hmm. considering what happened to Mark and, and then later what happened to Nick. And Nick's family reached out to me to, um, to want to sit down and tell their story. And I really wanted to tell it right. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to economy of words, it's very easy to, not very easy, it's easy to do that when you report it. Like, Oftentimes, you know, it's it's the detail of of knowing. Like uh, uh, those details are from reporting and from from observing and and from interviewing, and so you don't have to cover up what you don't know with flashy language and and tone. Um, you can try and get it, you know, across uh, in a much more understated but confident and frankly true truer way. Um, through the accretion of detail. And so that's what I tried to do. And luckily, I was lucky because the, the Bonacani family um, gave me the access um, because of their history with me and Mark and um, allowed me to understand the trials that Nick have gone through. I mean, this guy, it's, it's kind of amazing because he, he really was an, a, a, an amazing figure. It's not that he was a, just a great football player. He was also the the head of U.S. Tobacco, the um, the the uh, a player agent who rep- represented you know Bucky Dent and and other Yankees uh, for a while, um, and then he was a commentator for for 17, 18 years on HBO about football. So this guy had worn so many incredibly ha- uh, uh, different hats in the in the world of sports um, and and life. Frankly, I mean, just I mean, the whole. Um, sort of argument over CTE so eerily echoes that of tobacco and Nick was in the in, in, you know was astride both those both those fights and so um, he's an important figure and uh, I wanted to tell the story right and it's funny that you say economy of words because my editors will tell you that you know, I always wrote long I always you know uh, you know they, they could always be cut um, and, and, and that's true be, because I worked so hard and I thought I had a lot of information. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think, as much for flower language as it was that I just I had a lot of stuff. And certainly what the Bonacana story did, because the, because the story was like an epic novel. I mean, there's, there's, his life was like an epic novel. And what had happened to his son was Greek tragedy. And, and um, it's an important story. I, I, I hope I came close to telling it um, well. No, it was... A fantastic read and, and and you talk about you know your editors you know having you know stuff to cut because I feel like when you're doing feature writing you know the research that you do like, like you probably you know don't include a lot of stuff that goes into a feature after the research that you do so I'm just curious as a writer I mean how do you decide what to include and what not to and when it's a finished product like do you know whether a feature that you wrote like is going to be a good one or does it take, you know, days, months, years for it to sort of, you know, let it, you know, sizzle a bit before you really determine its its place in your 
repertoire of pieces? Well, I will tell you that I'm the least qualified to judge them because I'm so emotionally attached to it and mm. so engrossed in it by the t- and I've read it so many times by the time it's published that I don't even know what it is. And I and I don't it's like it's kind of startling really because you'd think after 36 years in the business I would I would be able to figure that out. But I I can't tell you how many times I've I've thought there are times when I thought I nailed a piece and I'll go back and read it and I'll be like, wow, that was horrible. <laughs> and then there are times, I can't tell you how many times where I felt like, oh, well, you know, just missed or uh, nothing I can do, but I did what I could in the time I was allotted. That was, a, that was a miss. That was a failure. And then 10 years later, I'll stumble upon it and think, wow, that, that really wasn't so bad. And Frankly, the, the, what's appalling to me is that I still can't tell the difference. I still don't know. I mean, I certainly know when I get information that um, that no one else has. Um, you know, I, you know. I know that because I've read so much. Whether whether and and that goes back to your original your, your first part of the question, which is, what do you leave in? Well, you leave in every. You definitely leave in everything that <laughs> that you see and hear that you haven't seen written before. I mean, that's it's sort of a obvious rule of thumb and there are times when things have been edited out and i'll go back to the editor and say look that, that's you got to keep that in that has never been said before and they're like oh okay and so you know there, there's that i mean obviously you know if you can write it in the structure where it's got scenes and visuals as much as words that's valuable um and the other thing is is that and this is really in the weeds but i always found that you know the with the longer pieces you always have the sections uh, different sections and they you know it starts and it stops and they're, they're very and I always found them to be very self-contained uh, um, I wanted to prove at least one thing in each section uh, some sort of point about the subject at hand and if along the way in though in that if, if, you know this is the kind of son this person is let's say that this is this is how he was the son or this is his life uh, as the son of a father in this household um, you know there are other details that maybe people haven't read before about that person, you know, in the sprinkled through the paragraphs. But in the end, I, 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 I'm hoping to prove one point or at least to present one idea that I hope the reader understands. And so that, that was sort of my animating principle in sort of terms of the structure. Um, and it is hard to, it is hard to sort of explain what you leave in and we leave out, but it's, in the end, it's, it's, it's very much like writing is very much like singing. It's, it's, mm. it's rhythm. It's, um, it's a song. And there are certain things that clang and there are certain things that, that you know stick. And I, I, I probably can't articulate it any better than that. But, but um, when you're humming along uh, and the rhythm is right, um, you, you just keep going. I want to end this conversation by by looking at you know the future and, and obviously it's so complicated right now with with the pandemic and, and whatnot but and we've talked about just how the industry you know has changed and, and in often ways not for the better um just in terms of jobs being you know reduced I'm just curious Scott in, in your opinion you know for for young journalists now coming up you know, you, you you just can't be a writer right now. You know, you got to be able to write. You got to be able to broadcast and have a lot of different skills. But maybe that's not enough. And, and I'm just curious, you know, how a young journalist navigates 
this time trying to find their way in an industry that is in decline. Well, I mean, my, my tune has changed on that because, you know, I was an English major and it worked for me. So, so, you know, it's, you gotta be I was always cautious of that, but still, I thought it was, it, it held up pretty well. I always felt early on, you know, certainly during the flush days and prior to video, uh, which is really what we're dealing with in a big way. But prior to that, I always felt that the most important thing, and it goes back to sort of, you know, me traveling around the world was a bit, was that um, a journalism degree was, was kind of useless. <laughs> you know, what you needed was the experience and a, and a liberal arts education that allowed you to sort of dip into different areas of knowledge easily and, and, and taught you how to dip into different areas of knowledge and um, have a, an appreciation of cultures and histories of other places and, um, you know, of a, a knowledge of, a broad knowledge of a lot of different subjects, economics, law, medicine, you know, city planning, sexuality, you know, however you want to, you know, whatever you can, you can name it. And that obviously worked for me, you know, that, that, but um, there's no question now that it's, it's a much more skill-based Da Vinci-like, meaning you, you've got to be a Swiss army knife, you know, uh, in terms of your skill set. And obviously, you know, writing, writing is never going to go away. I mean, you're you, in the sense of the, the skills and the advantages of being a good writer and being able to communicate um, with words, which are our, our toolbox as human beings um, for communication, is always going to be valued. But obviously, the way that it comes across by way of video or digital or, or podcasts or whatever. You have to technically learn these skills. So I would argue, and I've certainly found it a lot because journalism is both cratering. So parents, you know, every parent who sends their kids to college almost faints when they hear the kid wants to major in journalism. But if your kid is determined to do it and they have to do it, look, my dad wanted me to major in business. I was like, no, I'm, I'm good. So I understand it, but I would argue that you definitely need some journalism skills that are taught in skill in school that, that you can get access, more accessibly in, in, in university. So I would argue that kids should at least double major in, in, in journalism and, and something else. Obviously what's happened in the business is that things are much more niche, that you know, someone who has a deep knowledge of sports law, instead of being a parachute guy, people who have dug out and figured out uh, sports medicine, sports law, uh, management, you know, um, uh, you know, any number of, of, of different sort of niches, stadium design is probably because the internet going to be able to find an audience who, of people who are interested in those specific things more than a generalist. I'm a generalist. And the day of the generalist is, is, is essentially over. The other thing is, I mean, I think we're dealing with something that's far larger than that, which really we are at the end of the Gutenberg sort of era. That um, that the premium on reading is is being replaced. Now look, there's always there, but I mean the one thing you need to look at is is novelists used to be central in the culture. You know Hemingway, Steinbeck, all those guys. You know they were on the cover of Time magazine, and they were the ones who were on talk shows. Now it's showrunners and uh, you know stars, of course. But but in terms of the medium, it's much more visual. And the way that 
people are choosing to not just the um, the, the way the people are choosing to process narratives is more visual and uh, you know episodic through a visual medium mm -hmm. and less and less so over sitting down and reading. Now, like I said, reading's never going to go away. Novels are never going to go away, but they're going to become more and more niche. The way that the mass of humanity is going to process information is not through a long story on Michael Jordan or a book, but on a 12-part series called The Last Dance. Mm -hmm. The danger, of course, is that Michael Jordan, you know, and his people were producers on that show. Mm -hmm. And so the truth is very much what Michael Jordan had a hand in creating about himself. And that's not always good. It's, 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 it's kind of harmless when it comes to sports, but when it comes to public policy and uh, medicine and other things, uh, you know, we, we need to be a little bit more rigorous in our journalism. Um, but there's no question that we're becoming a more visual-based world and we're, we're going away from the word. And, uh, you know, it may be a hundred year process, um, but that's where we're going. And, and it's because it's, it's so easy to consume. It's just so easy. You sit on your couch, you turn on, you don't have to, and we, I can tell you what we lose from it. We lose the imagination of the reader. We use, we, we give process of processing words. Um, I think it's a much more passive um, activity, uh, both physically, you're absorbing as opposed to engaging. Um, but, um, but be that as it may, that's where we are. And so because of that, it, it's gonna be incumbent upon the next class of journalists to learn how to tell those narratives uh, through a visual medium, as well as, I mean, obviously there are words gonna be there, so there's gonna be writing, but visually you're gonna to have to be inventive and competent. And it's gonna be incumbent upon the money people in this, in this industry who have been woefully deficient for the last 50 years, fat and happy, to actually come up with a business model that that will pay for that journalism because at the moment we have a situation where the journalism is is not being paid for it and as a result it's suffering but there are still incredible great journalists out there they're just being let down by the business side and um there will continue to be kids who want to write and are determined to write and need to write and enjoy talking to other people and want to tell their stories um, but the industry needs to be built around them and the structure needs to be created so that they can actually get the job done as much as we need them to get that job done.